Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. Welcome back to the 23rd episode in our series on the first half of world history. In the 22nd episode, we discussed the intellectual revival of Charlemagne in the fact that his drive for learning was perhaps his greatest legacy. We saw the way he recruited top scholars from around the world to copy those ancient manuscripts written by the legendary philosophers and experts in a variety of other academic and medical fields. But the most important point of that was that, again, in such example, in such a, a clear example of the overall lack of learning during the Middle Ages is the fact that despite all those scholars recording the old information, not one was actually doing anything to advance those ideas, to question those ideas, to ask how and why. And then finally, we also discussed that Charlemagne, because of the Salic law, would ultimately have his territory divided in three, not because of his son, Louis, but because of his grandsons, Lothair, Louis, and Charles, and the bitter warfare that took place until the Treaty of Verdun was signed in 843 AD. And that ended our 22nd podcast. However, please know that the damage was done to the Roman Catholic Church in this sense that with the crowning of Charlemagne as the first Holy Roman Emperor, forevermore the Roman Catholic Church could not be accused of essentially jumping in bed with politicians, to put it bluntly. So in this 23rd podcast, we're going to see how the Roman Catholic Church attempts to fight back against that reputation. We're going to see it in a couple of ways. Number one, militarily slash violently. We're also going to see how they do it legally as well, where they attempt to involve themselves truly in domestic politics. So with the political revival, the foundation for this in this 250-year period of 1050 to 1300, Europe was able to settle down and focus on domestic affairs. We see that there was longer, judging by skeletal remains, we see that there were longer lifespans. There were less war casualties, and both of those equated to a significant population growth. There's no evidence of any major plagues, with very few rare exceptions, and they were short-lived. Meteorologists also found out that the Earth was warming slightly at that time. Yes, yet another period of what we call global warming, which the Earth routinely does. It goes through periods of global warming and then global cooling. So in this 250-year period from 1050 to 1300 AD, that 250 years again saw a warming of the globe. And of course, it's going to be followed by global cooling 
when we get to that podcast, the rise of castles and the walls around them gave people more confidence. It's during this time period as well that soldiers would take the idea of a walled castle or walled estate and put a thin veneer of metal all around their bodies in order to protect them. In other words, we're getting into the age, of course, of suits of armor. Between the walls that surround the feudal estates, the high castle walls themselves, and the suits of armor, this sense of protection while one engages in fighting when necessary, again, gave people more confidence in this 250-year time period. What's going to truly blow up the confidence in the idea of castled walls and walled walls surrounding cities and feudal estates, as well as the suits of armor, is none other, of course, than gunpowder. So this new age in the Catholic Church is going to start out, as we talked about, where the, United, where the Roman Catholic Church is going to fight back militarily against this infamous reputation it's developing that it jumps in bed with politicians. And that would, of course, be the age of the Roman Catholic Crusades. Crusade itself, the term, translates means meaning a war for the cross, is what crusade actually translated means. But simply put, just to unpack it before we get into the characteristics of the crusades, is that the holy they were holy wars sponsored by the papacy for the recovery of holy land from the Muslims. It was truly the most obvious example of the Roman Catholic Church attempting to reestablish its authority over civilian and political leadership. In other words, listeners, the Roman Catholic Church was trying to push back the legacy of Charlemagne and his ancestors. So what's to fight for? Well, how about none other than the rapid advancement in the Muslim world of the territories coming under control of Islam, and none other ter- no other territory would make headlines any further or any more exciting than to actually try to recapture the land in which Jesus Christ was born in the country, the territory of modern-day Israel. People of all ages participated in these crusades, but please note that the omnipresent but tacit overall goal was to reunite the Eastern Orthodox churches, which had broken off in the year 1054 AD, and when they broke off from the Western Catholic churches. The First Crusade, no surprise, that in 1096 was only a few decades after the Roman Catholic break between themselves and the Orthodox Church. And if you remember, orthodoxia translated means the right way. The Orthodox Christians, they claimed to be living the message of Jesus far better than the leaders of the Western Catholic Church, the Western Catholic Church was. And this first crusade only lasted roughly three years from 1096 to 1099 AD. It was called by Pope Urban II, with the simple goal of reclaiming the land taken by Muslims, specifically Jerusalem. The result was very successful, mainly because the Muslims were caught by surprise. But of all the future Roman Catholic Crusades, not that we will talk about necessarily in 
these podcasts as they get more specific, but rather this crusade would be the only one that the Roman Catholic Church could quite possibly define as a success, which we'll talk about for reasons in a moment. Now, how would the Roman Catholic Church possibly recruit individuals to fight on a foreign land after a journey which would take weeks and hundreds, if not eventually thousands of miles? Well, number one, of course, would be religious convictions. You're fighting for God's territory. You're fighting to take back the birthplace of Jesus Christ to the point that even though the Bible says not to engage in violence, in fact, when Jesus, the right-hand man of Jesus, that being St. Peter, took a sword and struck the slave's right ear when Jesus was about to be arrested, Jesus rebuked Peter in saying, Thou who lives by the sword shall die by the sword, and reached out and healed the slave's ear. How then does one actually engage in violence if these were supposedly Jesus' words? Well, the Roman Catholic Church put those guilty minds at ease by saying, should you die in battle, you will be buried with your arms crossed so that Jesus recognizes that you were fighting for the land of the cross. So number one, in terms of recruitment, religious convictions, a second way they were able to recruit was because of the idea of foreign travel. You got to remember that at this time, on an average feudal estate, an individual by and large never traveled more than 25 miles away from where they were born during their entire life. Leaving feudal walled estates was extremely risky, and especially into territories unknown. So for longevity, it was best that you stayed put behind the safety of the walled, the, the walled feudal estates. Within that, though, that's not to say that people were not attracted to the idea of foreign travel. And that's what led to a third reason why it was quite easy to recruit, the sheer excitement of it all. It also led to a fourth reason, employment opportunities. And a fifth reason was the cleaning out of the ranks for the lords. In other words, the Lord took this, the, the landlords took the opportunity to assist the Roman Catholic Church by taking some of the more problematic soldiers and essentially doing away with them by giving them to the Pope to fight in the name of God. So for those five major reasons, that's why recruitment was easy. Foreign travel, religious convictions, sheer excitement employment opportunities, and then the cleaning out of the ranks. So knowing, again, that the Roman Catholic Church, the First Crusade, by and large, was considered a success, then it does beg the question, what ultimately was the legacy of these Roman Catholic Crusades? First off, let me put it out there and call it for what it was. They were wars. There's no other way to look at it. There's no other way simply to define it. And because of that, arguably one of the best summaries about the legacy of the Crusades could be boiled down into one sentence. That essentially the legacy of the Crusades is that they were a long act of intolerance fueled by greed and cruelty. A long act of intolerance fueled by greed and cruelty. 
I couldn't literally have summarized it better myself. But a second legacy is that it also further increased the tension between Islam and Christianity. How could they not have, correct? So was there anything that one could literally consider to be positive that came out of the Roman Catholic Crusades? And that, to be fair, would be a yes. The fact that trade routes were established and giving Europeans exposure to different cultures would have a long-lasting positive effect. Would that be enough to counter the other two reasons why they truly were a negative point of Roman Catholic Church history? I don't think so, but that's only my opinion. But those were, the, by and large, the three legacies of the Crusades. Moving along, so again, we can see that the way the Roman Catholic Church was trying to fight back its involvement in the days of Charlemagne and his ancestors, the first was militarily. A second way that the Roman Catholic Church was fighting back was through its own papal documents. And that's why we called this time period revival and reform within the Catholic Church. One of the two documents that we'll take a look at is that by Gregory VII, who in his papal mandate of 1075 AD said that all church officials are subservient to the Pope. This is Gregory's way of clearly pushing back on that once intertwined involvement between the Holy Roman Emperor and the Roman Catholic Pope. Gregory is trying to distance that relationship. He's trying to create a chasm, a major split between political leaders and religious leaders. To back that up, Gregory says that the Pope alone is responsible for human salvation, and no politician will ever recapture the ability to be responsible for human salvation again. And lastly, what about when there is a dispute between the political and the religious elements of European society? Gregory VII puts any of these concerns to rest when he says that the Pope is supreme in all political and religious affairs. Gregory VII, in that papal mandate of 1075, clearly tried to lay and establish a lot of inroads to distancing the Roman Catholic Church's relationship with the major European political powers. But like anything else, listeners, what is, on, what is simply in writing doesn't mean it materializes in reality. A second pope that we're going to take a look at briefly is with that of, by Boniface VIII, who in 1302 wrote that no one, no Roman Catholic shall seek salvation outside of the Roman Catholic Church. Because again, he's, he, Boniface, is going to back up Gregory VII when he says that in addition to no salvation being able to be achieved outside of the Roman Catholic Church, he then goes further and says that the Pope is supreme in all affairs, that Pope supremacy is supreme in all affairs. Okay? Go ahead, listeners, ask. How does he know that? Where does Boniface VIII get his idea that the Pope is supreme in all affairs. Boniface VIII 
answers those anticipated answers that anticipated question. Because in his second part, which is a major tenet of his writings, Pope Boniface VIII wrote that Pope supremacy is simply ordained by God. End of discussion. I don't mean to say that that's the end of our discussion, but that's the way Boniface VIII left it. Pope supremacy was simply ordained by God. So briefly, let's look, therefore, at the results of just these two of the several papal documents that come out during and are written, submitted during this 250-year period. First off is that the clergy became independent of any European emperors. Secondly, the combination of church and state politics is drastically scaled back. And the longest reaching effect of these papal documents is that the public belief in the divine right of kings that was once first proclaimed by Charlemagne back on Christmas Day, 800 AD, plummeted, thereby making it more difficult for royal families to govern. In other words, by the Roman Catholic Church turning back the hands of, the, the hands of time, it's almost as though that these papal documents was pushing the European political entities back to the days before Charlemagne and his ancestors. How will they fight back? How will these political leaders attempt to govern when the Roman Catholic Church is distancing themselves more and more? Stay tuned for future episodes where we'll flush this out. So a second way, again, in this podcast that the Roman Catholic Church is fighting back, the first again militarily through the Roman Catholic Crusades, the second way, of course, was through papal documents. A third and final way that the Roman Catholic Church was fighting back was by getting involved in local, politi- in local domestic politics. And the most classic example of this, right from this time period, is none other than Magna Carta. Magna Carta, we've heard of this before, this is nothing more than a fancy way of saying great charter or great document. Simply put, Magna Carta, that document signed by the English king, John, on June 15th, 1215, in Runnymede, England. Simply put, the document was binding between the ruler and the ruled that guaranteed human rights against the excessive use of royal power. Again, Magna Carta was a binding document between the ruler and the ruled that guaranteed human rights against excessive use of royal power. Now, to put the myth to bed that King John willingly signed this and more or less echoed the sentiment felt amongst the English commoners and the barons that human rights had advanced under his reign is totally a myth. King John not only reluctantly signed it, he actually refused to sign it when the barons approached him a couple of times before. He simply used his royal guards to dismiss the commoners and the barons, wanting nothing to do with them, and certainly wouldn't put his John Hancock 
on any document that gave commoners any sense of advancement of their rights and guaranteeing human rights? There's no way King John was going to willingly do that. Then why did he, on that famous day in June of 1215? Because simply the numbers were against him. When one of King John's aides reluctantly approached him again with the document and saying that the commoners and barons were waiting for his signature, he was about to lose his temper and take the document and shred it. When his own advisors put up their hands in reluctant defiance, not that they were defying him, but asking him to go and look out amongst the fields around him, and as far as King John could see, citizens from all over the empire were looking upon him, waiting for him to sign the document. Simply put, King John was significantly outnumbered. As a result, he reluctantly signed the document. Now, in my, again, 20 plus years of teaching at the college level, I have yet to ever have a student ask me, hey, professor, just curious, who wrote that document? With illiteracy so high, who actually had the ability to pen such an intricate, involved, and advanced ideas into this document? Well, the author largely didn't try to stay anonymous. He just simply signed his name, Stephen Langton. That was his name, L-A-N-G-T-O-N. Oh, so the average student, when I tell them who signed it, who, who uh, wrote the document, oh, so it was an English commoner. But that wasn't the case. Stephen Langton was the Archbishop of Canterbury. You see, this is the Roman Catholic Church using one of its bishops on this complex political chessboard in order to undermine royal authority and undermine the divine rule of a king by appealing to the people and thereby the Roman Catholic Church looking like it truly is defending the commoners against the royal abuses that were routinely exhibited by the royal families of England. This, as I say, is the third way that the Catholic Church was fighting back. What it did also is it marked the first time that man or commoners successfully limited the absolute authority of a ruler or king. Yes, the document would be violated and trampled on by future kings of England at times, but the steps would forevermore be seen. The advancement of commoners' rights progressed. A document that over 500 years later, a group of men called the Founding Fathers of America would look back on as somewhat of an outline on what they would put in their future document called the Constitution of the United States of America. Not to also ignore Magna Carta's impact on America's first cornerstone document, that of course being the Declaration of Independence. What the document also did is that it truly was a symbol of the supremacy of law. No, not complete supremacy, but it advanced the idea 
that the supremacy over the governing body of people was not an individual, but actually a document. Again, not completely. But that's where a future constitution of the United States of America would take the, the land gained, the progress gained by Magna Carta, and advance that even forward when they declared, once the Constitution was accepted, that the Constitution is the supreme law of the land. When I introduced the Constitutional Convention, I asked my students, who is the ultimate authority in the United States? Who is the top dog? I purposely don't ask who, who meaning person, but I ask who or what is the ultimate symbol of authority in the United States. And, and not surprisingly, students will answer, oh, uh, the president of the United States. And when I say no, uh, Speaker of the House, Senate Majority Leader, no and no. That only leads the third branch of government then, the Chief Justice of the United States, and wrong again. All of those political positions are subservient to the supreme law of the land which isn't a person, but a document. The Constitution is the supreme law of the land. Now, in terms of this document, the Magna Carta, to our knowledge, there are three quote-unquote originals that remain around the world. Two of them are in England's possession, and one might say rightly so, it's their document. And England is waiting to get their hands on the third original, that was written at this time. And they're going to have to wait longer because not long ago, that third original of Magna Carta was actually put up for auction at an auction house in the United States of America. And it sold for a cool $31 million. So that wraps up this podcast in the way we looked at the way that the Roman Catholic Church fought back against the gains of the political entities established by Charlemagne. We saw again the way they fought back militarily through the Crusades, as well as the way through papal documents that they attempted to push the power back of the politicians. And then we saw the way that they tried to intervene in domestic affairs. How then does this play out? What is the future of the Roman Catholic Church going to look like as we march forward throughout the Middle Ages? Tune into future podcasts to find out. So thank you for listening. If you have any questions, please go to my website and contact me through there, or if you have any book recommendations. Otherwise, thank you again for listening. Have a great week, and we'll see you at the next podcast. 